You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Whatever you do, don't feed the hosts after midnight. Give me a kiss to fill a dream on In my imagination will drive upon that kiss Sweetheart, I ask no more than this A kiss to fill a dream He can make you do things If you look into his eyes He can make you do things And when it's over You don't remember doing any of it It was a page turner I mean, everything Christopher writes Is suspenseful and a page turner And I always marvel at that Welcome to a special presentation of The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Legendary horror novelist Peter Strobe described Christopher Rice's forthcoming novel, The Heavens Rise, like this. Christopher is a magician. He executes his turns, reversals, and surprises with the pace and timing of a master. The Heavens Rise would not let me stop reading it. That's how compelling it is. Well, I couldn't agree more. While Christopher and I were working together this past year to create and produce The Dinner Party Show, he was also putting the finishing touches on his first supernatural thriller. It's a tale of romance, horror, and corruption set in his magical hometown of New Orleans. The Heavens Rise will be published October 15th, but right now we bring you an exclusive look inside the novel that's received early acclaim from writers Patricia Cornwell, Charlene Harris, and Robert McGammon, as well as a coveted starred review in Publishers Weekly. Later on, we'll be joined by Anne Rice, Christopher's mother and a dinner party show regular. She'll be here to discuss her reactions to the novel and her feelings about the horror genre in general and whether or not either member of the Rice family truly belongs to it. And a special note, the pre-order campaign for The Heavens Rise continues until publication day. So, if you pre-order a copy of the book and email your receipt to The Heavens Rise, you'll receive a signed copy of a page from the original manuscript featuring author notes. And now, here's my co-host, New York Times bestselling novelist Christopher Rice, with a special reading from The Heavens Rise. Anthem Landry considered it a miracle that Nicky took him back. And every hour since that fateful phone call, he felt like an electric chair-bound convict, rescued by the governor's pardon at the last possible second. He'd turned into one of those chatty, cheerful jackasses who could make conversation about almost any topic with any clerk in any place of business. His older brothers, who only rallied around him when he was down, had taken to calling him Cool Whip, which was really just a version of the term Pussy Whipped that they could use when their mother was in the room. For Anthem, the real discovery was that none of the begging None of the sobbing late-night phone messages and none of the long letters he had tucked under the windshield of Nicky's Toyota 4Runner, letters in which he had pled his innocence to kingdom come, had done the job. Once again, it was Ben who had come to the rescue. The kids and teachers who'd observed their little trio from a distance over the years always wrote Ben off as their third wheel. The nerdy hanger-on Nikki stayed loyal to because they'd been besties since birth. It was horseshit, and Anthem told them so whenever he got the chance. Ben Broyard was their glue, their rational mind, the provider of their few deep breaths. And in the past 24 hours, he'd averted the end of Anthem's whole world. Sure, he was barely five foot two and had a high-pitched nasally voice that wasn't about to get him work on WWL radio, but when the little dude set his mind to something, he could marshal as much wallop as a hurricane. And for the past two weeks, the most important project in his life had been getting Brittany Lowe to admit that her story about hooking up with Anthem was a complete crock. How he'd done it, Anthem wasn't exactly sure. All that mattered was that he'd tape-recorded the lying skank's confession and played it for Nikki. And the rest, as they say, was makeup sex. Why? 
Anthem had asked Ben after things were reconciled. After a night spent inhaling the scent of Nikki's perfume and feeling like he'd been pulled up and over the edge of a cliff by one arm. Why'd she lie? I'm working on it, A-Team, was Ben's cryptic reply. That had been three days ago, and now the two of them were flying across the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway, bound for Elysium. Of course, someone was missing, and in light of recent events, Nikki's absence from his pickup truck that night left knots of tension across Anthem's upper back. It wasn't just a housewarming party they'd be attending in the morning. It was also Miss Millie's birthday, so she had every right to demand that her daughter ride out to Elysium with her and Mr. Noah. But still, it made Anthem nervous, like the weekend away was actually an audition rather than a welcome back celebration. It was neither, Ben pointed out, about three times after they got on the causeway, probably because it gave him an excuse to turn down the volume on the Cowboy Mouse CD Anthem had been playing on repeat for about a year now. This is a birthday present for her mom, Ben said, with that maddeningly parental tone that sometimes made Anthem want to pop him one. Don't make this all about you. God knows the Anthem and Nikki show has had enough cliffhangers this season. It's just good that we're going, right? Absolutely. I mean, if she wasn't sure, we wouldn't be going at all, and they sure as hell wouldn't let us come out the night before like this and sleep in the guest room, so I... You know, we've really covered this, A-Team. I know, I know, I'm just saying. Yeah, well, less saying, more driving. The Causeway cops are all bored a-holes. You're a real gift in my life, you know that, Ben? You're kidding, right? Totally bullshitting. Yeah, I figured. For years afterward, the sound of oyster shells cracking under tires ignited a low flame in the pit of Anthem Landry's stomach, because that was the sound that brought an end to so many things. That sound in the sight of Elysium's long, curving driveway, empty and deeply shadowed behind the padlocked cast-iron gate. He tried Nikki on her cell, but got no answer. That didn't mean anything, Ben insisted. Coverage on this part of the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain was always spotty. Twenty minutes. That's how long they lasted. Twenty minutes of listening to the ticking sound of the truck's cooling engine mingling with the moist undertones of the swamp before Anthem pointed out the strangeness of the situation. This is weird, Anthem said. They should be here by now. And Ben started right in with all the assurances, all the elaborate possibilities as to where they could have stopped along the way and why. Gas stations, grocery stores, maybe a flat tire, or two, or three. Never mind that Ben had spoken to Nikki on the phone just as the family was heading out the back door. Over an hour before Anthem had left Metairie to pick up Ben at his parents' house uptown. Never mind that Mr. Noah was a taskmaster who defined punctuality. If he knew the boys were joining the family tonight, which he most certainly did, he would have had the house open and blazing with light to greet their arrival. After an hour and four calls to Nikki's cell, Ben ran out of explanations. After an hour and a half and no return call from Nikki, Anthem ran out of patience. He made a three-point turn in the rutted road and drove back to the highway. There was a gas station next to the turnoff, and Ben wanted to see if anyone working there had seen the DeLongpre's Lexus SUV. Later that night, they'd both learn that if Anthem had kept driving for about another half mile on Highway 22, they just might have noticed the mangled stretch of guardrail through which the DeLongpre family had disappeared. And now it's time for Reading Circle with Jonelle Sams, homemade relationship advice columnist for The Dinner Party Show. Ooh, excuse me. <laughs> I'm Jonelle Sams in the Reading Circle, and I have not had a lick of sleep thanks to The Heavens Rise, the new book by Christopher Rice, host of The Dinner Party Show. I'm sure Christopher is a wonderful writer if you like that kind of thing. I mean, even though this book is not my cup of tea, the reason that it's not is that all that scary stuff in this is just too real for me, if you know what I mean. 
Like when that one character takes that snake. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Just could not keep reading this kind of salacious material. Entirely too racy. Like when that reporter and that young man get in a boat and sneak into the crime scene on the north shore of the Lake Pontchartrain. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Was tossing and turning over that part where that girl used mind control on that awful boy and got him to break out that window in that high-rise restaurant during that fundraiser and then... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I don't mind telling you, I had to sleep with the lights on because of that part where that same terrible boy got that poor girl alone in that swimming pool and tried to... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, excuse me, Jonelle. Christopher, it is lovely of you to join us in the reading circle. Thanks, Jonelle. So let me ask you, did you read the whole book? Well, I could hardly help it. But you don't think anybody else should? Not unless they want to read a book that scares the stuffing out of them so bad that they can't put it down. No, sir, I do not think they should read The Heavens Rise or they will be up all night. Well, I can't ask for any better than that. I'm sorry as I can be, Christopher. Don't you worry about it, Jonelle. This has been Reading Circle with Jonelle Sams and featuring Reading Circle guest Christopher Rice and his new book, The Heavens Rise, available for pre-order pretty much everywhere. Oh, dear Lord, Christopher, I especially can't recommend that part where that terrible character's mind just snaps and then he turns into a giant... Okay, Jonelle, point taken. Not a lick of sleep. I'm really sorry, Jonelle. Okay, well, so big head in the reading circle, Christopher Rice, <laughs> is now joining us at the dinner party show for some uh, other thoughts, perhaps, but fewer spoilers and other thoughts about The Heavens Rise. I would like to start at the risk of being Uh-oh. a little spoilery. Uh-oh. I would like to say that if Christopher Rice was not my best friend, <laughs> I am not sure that I would have finished reading this book. There is a damn snake scene and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Spoiler alert. There is a scene with a snake in this. I'm not a fan listen, of snakes. Listen, listen, listen. listen scared listen. me. I, I, I would not have finished. I would have stopped reading in the middle of that scene and that would have been the end of me be- reading this book. And let me, let me say here, and I'm going to try not to spoil anything either. Um, the snake doesn't do anything bad. The snake is used in a bad way by someone who is truly evil. And in some sense, the snake is as much a victim as everyone else in that scene. The poor (laughs) snake. It was the context of the snake. I know. I hate snakes as much as you do. And I'll have to say there was something weird. (gasps) I I didn't think I would be able to get away with writing that scene without completely nerving myself out. But it's that weird thing of when you're the writer, you're in control. You're in control of the scene. You're in control of the environment, and I could handle the snake. Okay, as long we have as to I stop talking control. about the snake. I'm getting like You're chills getting now. I'm out. starting to freak out about the snake. I brought <laughs> yeah, it up. It's okay. my own fault. I apologize. Apologize to any snake haters out there that got all weirded out by that part. And let's it, just say it is not a snake novel. It's it is just not one it scene. Is a novel we're about, about. It is not. It is totally. It is a, an absolutely. I, it's a it's a page turner. It's Thank a spellbinding you. novel. I I could not. I agree with Peter Strobe. I just could not stop reading this book and and I think everybody will have the same experience. I'm interested to hear what people thought. But tell us a little bit about your process. You were you worked on this for quite a while. This for is a new years. genre for you. It's a whole new yeah. thing. Talk a little bit about how you came up with The Heavens Rise. I worked on it for two years. I had initially planned to write a terrestrial thriller, as I like to call it, even though this book does take place on planet Earth. It has fantastical <laughs> supernatural elements. I had I was at a dinner party, actually a birthday party, with another friend of mine from New Orleans, Sarah DeLeo, who's a movie producer now. She made Bless Me Ultima uh, recently. And we're, we were being the New Orleans kids at the party, and for some reason... Uh, somebody brought up the Bright Field accident. And if you're not from New Orleans and you don't know what that is, that was an incident many years ago that could have been absolutely catastrophic, but we averted disaster. I I actually don't think anyone was killed, but I may not be right about that. A large cargo container ship on the Mississippi River lost engine power right as it was rounding the bend 
in the Mississippi, and it crashed into the Riverwalk, which is a shopping mall right down there at the foot of Canal Street. Oh. It's really the, the heart of the city. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and this happened in 1996 or 1997. And nobody at this dinner party had heard of it, so Sarah and I were talking about it and sort of telling the story and, and getting ourselves all worked up right. and dramatified. And at this time, I was casting around for the idea for my next book. I think The Moonlit Earth had just come out, and I was my contract with that publisher was up, so I was a free agent, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. And I think about two or three days later, I turned on the television, and TiVo, lovely TiVo, on whom we all rely for our entertainment needs these days, had automatically recorded a special about the Bright Field accident. Wow. And I went, okay, universe. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> right. I'm listening. So what happened from, from that moment was that I was drawn into the world of riverboat pilots on the Mississippi River. I was drawn into the world of the local bar pilots associations. I immediately discovered that there was great controversy around how much they were paid. They make about $300,000 a year. That that there's a sense that their political power in Baton Rouge is... Uh, too enormous, you know. I don't actually agree with any of these points, but they were they were widely written about. There was a big expose in the Times Picayune that had made all of the riverboat pilots furious. So I began researching their world, not aware that I was heading in the direction of making a supernatural novel. The other parallel desire here was a desire to revisit a post-Katrina New Orleans, which I had been asked to do by readers over and over yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that is a really compelling aspect of the book. Right. But here was the other thing, too, is that the older I get, the more my first novel, as much as I love it and as much as people love it, the more I see the perspective in it as being very youthful and very unforgiving on certain aspects of the city and certain communities in particular. And I had wanted to go back and tell, and this is going to seem very ironic given that, that a horror novel was the result of all this, I wanted to go back and tell a softer, gentler story about New Orleans. <laughs> but I wanted to be... I wanted the characters, with one exception, to be softer and gentler. But what they go through is anything but soft this and gentle. This reminds me of the time that Christopher once told me we were on a car trip somewhere. And he said he was thinking of writing a comic novel. And I turned to him and said, in which thousands die due to dark forces. And he went, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and I, I went, like, yeah, mm, that, that sounds that about was, like the comic novel. So the softer, yeah. general, gentler this New Orleans a, horror story. Yeah, picture basically. Yeah. Basically. Talk some about, you made the decision, this is your first, as you said, non-terrestrial, even mm -hmm. though it is earthbound, right. uh, uh, thriller. D talk a little bit about making that decision. What inspired you, novelists, or was it... I know it's kind of a family tradition. Was it? Had you avoided it because of the family I, I was, tradition? I had or? avoided it, and I was encouraged to avoid it by editors over the years. That unless I could do something that was directly in line with what my mother had done, they suggested that I not try at all, which had been very discouraging, even, at, even as I had tried to cultivate various ideas in this area. That said, I think I had been going about it the wrong way because I had been looking for the concept ahead of the characters. And what happened here is that I looked to the characters first and developed those first and basically discovered, I'm putting in air quotes, that one of them had a supernatural ability. I couldn't, I knew I was going to do a group of friends in New Orleans again at a later period in their life than, their, than anyone in A Density of Souls. Uh -huh. And I knew that one had gone missing and that she was the girl and she was sort of their glue and she had this incredible soul to her and I couldn't figure out why she'd gone missing. And I was shuddling through all the logical explanations. She's a drug addict. I've written about so many drug addicts. Right. I was like, oh, I don't want to do that again. You know, but she's this, she's this. And there was, she's got a gift. She's got a supernatural ability that has the potential to grievously harm the people that she cares about, a gift that she would be terribly tempted to use on them if she were close to them, and she's been forced to abandon them and, and, and go away. And that was the really the genesis of the supernatural aspect of the story. So it wasn't originally planned as a supernatural novel. It no. just evolved into that. No, it was originally planned, and it's hard to discuss without getting spoilery because things that were Not going to... Not doing that. Spoiler-free zone. Exactly. Things that were going to start off that terrestrial thriller are now the culmination of the supernatural story. So I won't go into too much detail, but you know, I will say that no, it started off, it was going to be about riverboat pilots and it was going to be a conspiracy theory involving a, you know all these different aspects of their lives. And it turned more in the direction of the ensemble character feel of a density of souls. And 
really the time that I took over the two years I spent editing and rewriting, I wrote about four drafts before it ever went to anyone in New York City. Let's put it that way. And uh, that time was spent on really fine-tuning the cosmology of the book, the, the, the supernatural universe, because I do not like supernatural tales in which the rules are inconsistent or in which I feel like the writer's just pulling it out of their ass as they go. I well, just don't like What that. are some of the supernatural tales and the supernatural writers that, that inspired you? Who Did you read a bunch getting into this? or Do you read that all the time? Or I had started reading them more and more as my desire to do a supernatural novel intensified, but that desire was intensifying and it wasn't finding a story to go with it. But I began reading supernatural novels and, and horror novels in particular, again, even though horror has a bit of a dirty dirty word connotation now in the publishing industry. And the writer, I think, who influenced me the most was Robert McCammon, who mm. is actually, I'm very honored to say, one of the blurbers of this Absolutely. Book. That's yeah. really very honorable. Yeah. I, this, was, um, this was happening in this little gap period that existed before a lot of the backlists of these writers went into the ebook world. And I'm a, I'm a pretty early converter to ebooks. I, I have to admit, I still love it's physical just books. It's so and, convenient. But I, I really am a, a digital kid and I loved ebooks. But I got a copy of an old Robert McCammon novel that I remembered being around our house when I was a boy, which had scared me because the cover was this giant sort of reptilian claw coming up out of dry, cracked, sort of desert earth. And the book was called Stinger. And I thought, oh, that's going to, I got to check that out. And I loved it. I loved it because it was beautifully written. I loved it because the characters were interesting and complex. And I remember saying to you as I, as I read it, that what elevated it above just an everyday horror novel was that the characters were not just being introduced to be slaughtered or killed. The, the basic premise of the novel was that on basically what will be the last day of this impoverished, worn-down Texas town in the sort of El Paso desert area, the factory is going to close, the school is going to close. On the last day, um, an alien bounty hunter comes through town chasing another alien. And the town becomes the scene of this unbelievable fight between these two alien forces. And the alien that is trying to escape is a shapeshifter, and it goes into the body of a little girl to hide itself. So it was, you know, like a total great B-movie concept, but executed with such style and such finesse that it was incredibly inspiring. That really is a wonderful story. I yeah. love the idea of that. I'm a little inspired myself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now, I want to talk, Anne Rice will be joining us later. Yes, on I, know, I know her. You yes, know her. Your know mom her, will yes. be joining us later on the show. And I, I want to ask her about this, and I'm sure she'll have plenty to say, but I wanted to, to start the conversation with you. You even sort of alluded to it here, the idea of a book being a horror book. Like, mm -hmm. what is a horror book? What is scary? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. what, what, what makes a book a horror novel or not a horror novel or... I mean, I was pretty horrified reading this. I was terrified. It was right. very frightening, but also very sort of... It has your thriller yes. threads in it as well, that you just can't wait to find out what's going to happen next. It's an interesting question, and I think I'd be interested to hear what Mom has to say about it as well. Obviously, it's something she and I have talked about over the years. My My opinion is really it is about how familiar most of your characters are with the supernatural universe that you introduce. If you start out with a story in which most of the characters um, are accustomed to and familiar to an exotic alternate universe that's completely foreign to your reader's experience, I would say you're more in the sci-fi and fantasy realm. If you open up a story that's going to involve a really stark collision between this world and some other world, or this world and some supernatural ability, or this world and some alien or some monster, some previously unknown creature. I'd say you're in horror territory, because you're implying a dramatic conflict, and you're implying a loss of comfort and security, at the least, on the part of your main characters when they encounter this thing, okay. whatever it's going to be. Uh-huh. So that that I, that's my definition, but you know I, I agonize a lot over. I don't want to just be gross, you know. I don't, I don't want to. I I want the, you know, you you and I talk about this a lot. What is often scarier is what you don't see. I, I absolutely you know? think that's the case. I, so many years as an actor, when I see a lot of what purports to be horror or scary, I just see. You know, red food coloring and Hershey's syrup and right. Cairo and foam rubber. And I think, well, that's not actually. I, it, 
It doesn't, I know it isn't real because it's a movie, so it, it lacks scary, but the ideas of mm-hmm. themes, like, like the snake ultimately, as you pointed out in the scene that, eh, eh, maybe a little <laughs> spoiler alert, but it's, it's not that the snake does anything. It is the way in which you include it. Mm-hmm. The idea of that is what scared the hell out of me so right. much. Imagining that circumstance, interacting with the snake in that way, and that's really as much as I'm going to say about it, <laughs> you know, is what terrified me. Right. I think that is much more terrifying. Would that count as horror or is oh, that yeah. thriller? Or is oh, that yeah. like where does that fall? Listen, I think the line between thriller and horror is a lot more thin. Than, than many realize. We have a lot of conversations about the line between horror and fantasy and the line between horror and sci-fi, but I think at least today in the publishing world, the line between horror and thriller is very thin. I, I think often um, thrillers are about suspense and they are about a countdown to what we hope will be a satisfying resolution. Right. And horror doesn't always promise that. No. A lot of times sometimes what happens... it's just is, about being blessed. It is. And, and sometimes it's about the the source of evil is never fully vanquished. It just sort of moves on. Or the characters are maybe bettered because they've learned how to contend with it more. But there's never... a There's not usually a clean ending in horror. But I think certain writers today, like Blake Crouch, who I'm a huge fan of, who's going to have a series on FX called Wayward Pines. Right, which Chad, who was on the show, is in production on it now. I just saw on his Facebook page the other day, they're in production. We're very excited. Very excited for him. I think that he's really right on the line between thriller and horror, and it's one of the reasons I love his books so well. But, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting question. I think genres are in the minds of the reader a lot of the time. They really are. Forgive me if this takes you a little bit off guard, but, like, and and I kind of... on one hand, I kind of hate this kind of question as a writer, but but I think as a reader, it can be enormously helpful. Like, what other authors, what other books would you compare the heavens? Like, mm. if you, you know, they do that thing on, on Amazon. If you liked this book, right. you might also like, what would you put in that category? You know, books that might recommend readers to the heavens rise. Well, you know, I think the dream blurb that nobody has given and they may never give because it exists solely in my <laughs> Let's mind. Let's give it now. Is that this book is kind of a crazy hybrid of James Lee Burke and Stephen King. You know, it's grounded in a wow. very contemporary Louisiana. It is, and it and it has some concerns right. in it that are very political, that yes. are very about very the James environment Lieber. there. But it's got this Stephen King world literally bubbling up it's out really, of the ground. It's a great description. We should yeah. just make up somebody. We should do like that movie studio <laughs> right. and just make up a quote. And just make up quotes. That, the Spam a Lot reviews, where they took one word from each right. of the reviews and like. This is the them greatest together. show ever ever produced anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, no. I, yeah, I think that is a terrific description of, of, of what the heavens rise is. So is there anything I should ask that I haven't? Anything you wanted to get in there before we... You know, I think one of the important things is that, you know, we get nervous around all conversations with genre because we're afraid it's going to limit the audience for the book. And I think what you're going to see is the publisher will be referring to this book as a supernatural thriller. And and, and that will imply and whatever I think it that's implies. A good description as well. But I think there's something to be said for, I'll tell you what my own trepidation around the horror label is. I think horror movies recently have been really nihilistic and really sadistic and I don't think this book falls into that category. You know, I don't no, think... No, I don't think so. Why? And I'm not condemning those movies. I've enjoyed a lot of those movies. I enjoy the, some of the Jason Blum movies, like The Purge. I haven't seen The Purge, but Sinister was very terrifying. And th- those movies can be gratifying, but this isn't in that vein. Sorry, no, I cut you off. No, I no, I, I was just agreeing with you. I was thinking my back through my own experience with reading the book. And yeah, it doesn't have the um it doesn't have that sort of deliberate cruelty, as Blanche Dubois would say, right. the one unforgivable sin. It doesn't really include that. While they're very hard on each other, <laughs> there isn't that sort of sense of just pulling the wings off a fly, just being mean for the right. for its own sake. The the horrible character, the the Marshall, Marshall character, Ferio. gets as close to that as anybody, yes. but it's kind of what makes him horrible, and it right. isn't ultimately the substance of the story. I, absolutely, and I think what where the fear in the story does come from is this idea of what if somebody who was a complete psychopath and a narcissist who saw only what he wanted in the world and what he hadn't been given, 
was in fact given the power to make absolutely anyone do what he wanted them to do I just against think their will. Yeah. I think it's the scariest, one of the scariest concepts it, I can think of. And it's a brilliantly imagined mythology, if you will. The right. way in which you imagine that into being in this book, I think is really remarkable and completely original. It is, it is while it may be comparable to James Lee Burke and Stephen King in, in its sort of genre, it is ultimately incomparable to, to anything I've ever read before. It, it, it's mm. its own completely original new universe. Thank you. Thank you. I, music also plays an important part. Yes, absolutely. The, I'm, well, it's a New Orleans and, book, and, and, and yeah, yeah, the and city about music. So there are a couple songs. I've always thought Louis Armstrong music is so mournful and sad to me. There's a, there's like a nostalgia to it's it. It's the but, blues, baby. But it's the blues, and the song that I associated with, or that I chose to associate with, the great romance, or one of the great romances in the book that's referred to, which is the main character Nikki DeLongpre, her parents are, are are sort of have a great and enduring love for each other, which comes under great threat in the course of the book and their their song their engagement song the song that was playing the night her father proposed to her mother was a kiss to build a dream on by louis armstrong when he last visited the dinner party show critic at large jordan ampersand announced that he would not be returning to the show until he had traveled to the island of manhattan and convinced his best friend to move home to los angeles Unfortunately, it's a week later and Jordan still hasn't made it to New York, so... I'm in Denver. It's the Mile High City, but nobody has any blow, which is weird. Also unfortunate, apparently Jordan's contract stipulates that he is to give an advance review on all published works authored by Christopher Rice and myself, Eric Shaw Quinn. Suffice it to say... I had nothing to do with the drafting of this ridiculous contract. Jordan, why are you in Denver? I had an issue on the plane with a fellow passenger, but it's all fine and I'm out of jail now and I don't want to talk about it. Can we get to my book review, please? Because it's really important. Important to who, Jordan? People who like good books. Oh. Okay, so you thought Christopher's book was good. No, that's why I need to warn people who like good books. I see. Um, Have you thought about warning people how not to end up in jail for a week after a two-hour flight to Denver? Because that actually seems like something you might be qualified to do. Listen, I know Christopher tries really hard, but he's just not there yet. I mean, I read like half of it and I just couldn't get into it. And I really feel like it's important to hold your reader's interest and excite them. I know I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm probably closer to your average reader than either of you two smarty pantses is. Ugh, I won't argue with you on that last point. But Jordan, can you be more specific okay, about... Okay, so there's this other book I started reading on the plane before I got arrested, and it's totally amazing. See, there's this girl, Nikki DeLongpre, and she's really pretty, and she lives in New Orleans. And she has this totally hot, amazing boyfriend named Anthem Landry. But this evil guy, Marshall Ferrio, he wants Nikki. So he gets this other girl to lie and say she slept with Anthem. And Nikki's so pissed, she agrees to go out to her family's property in the swamp with Marshall alone. But when they get out there, Nikki realizes Marshall is a total psycho brains. And oh my God, she didn't tell anyone she was going out there with him. So what's going to happen? And then he pushes her into a swimming pool that her family just dug. And it's full of these strange parasites. And she pulls herself out of the water and just starts running away. Jordan, Jordan, and- Jordan. That, that is Christopher's novel. What? No. Oh, weird. I'm reading on my iPad and the screen is cracked. Dear God, how did you manage to crack your iPad screen? I hit that woman on the plane over the head with it during our misunderstanding. What? I don't think yapping little dogs want to be on planes. I was just trying for like a mercy killing. Jordan. What book did you think was Christopher's book? The Hunger Games. I read the whole thing and there was no Sudoku and I didn't get hungry once. That's false advertising. You are never reviewing a book on this show again. Um, excuse me, but you need to read my contract. You need to make sure you're reading the right one. What? My contract? Yes. Well, 
It is on my iPad. Goodbye, Jordan. Wait, can you guys buy me a plane ticket so I can get all the way to New York? No. Good. I want to connect through New Orleans because the book is totally making me want to go there so I can see if I can get this Anthem Landry guy wasted so it'll take me over what? I said no, Jordan. Why? Because you're awful. Goodbye, Jordan. Travel safe. Eric Shock. They moved the patient out of room four when animals started dying outside his window. The squirrels came first, a slightly disjointed row of them that appeared in a single day, just a few feet away from the window ledge. Furry tails limp and snake-like, chests sealed to the patchy lawn with dead weight. Two of the three nurses who gathered at room four's window that afternoon blamed the live oak tree nearby. Some sort of awful fungus must have laced itself all through the branches overhead. Then Alvin and his poor buddies took a few nibbles and plop, plop, plop. But Arthel Williams wasn't sold on this scenario. It would have been five plops in all, and not a single one of the squirrels had landed on its back. Was that even statistically possible? The thought of there being statistics related to random squirrel deaths made her laugh so hard her breath fogged the glass. She volunteered to go outside and take a closer look. It was a marvel, she thought, that her co-workers could empty a bedpan without so much as a wince, but the idea of getting within a few feet of a dead rodent turned them into squealing little girls. They watched her from the window as she poked at the furry carcasses with a stick. There was no sense in pushing Marshall Ferio's wheelchair to the window. He wouldn't be able to see any of it anyway. The boy hadn't seen a damn thing for eight years. But the new girl, Emily something or other, the little blonde who'd watched too many TV shows about hospitals on her daddy's flat screen and was always asking them silly questions about their mission, was so upset about the dead squirrels that she hadn't managed to peel her hands from her mouth in the entire time it had taken Arthel to walk outside. Tammy Keene, the other nurse who discovered the gory scene, finally gave in to the girl's histrionics and curved one arm around Emily's shoulders while she gave Arthel a pointed look that said, If I'd wanted to deal with children today, I would have stayed home and looked after my own. Some of these new nurses, Arthel had said to Tammy earlier that morning, they make it hard to tell who the patients are. The joke hadn't been one of her best. If they had been working at a real hospital, it might have earned her a cackle or two. But here at the Lenox Hill Long-Term Care Center, it was always possible to tell the nurses from the patients because none of the patients could walk or speak. A high-end vegetable garden. That's how Arthel had heard more than one visiting physician refer to the place. And it was a pretty apt description. A place for the rich to stash their brain-dead invalids until pneumonia or a virulent infection did them in for good. Of course, the brochure didn't word it quite so succinctly. Arthel dropped the stick she'd been using to prod the carcasses when she realized the other end had sunk into exposed brain matter. The squirrels hadn't tucked their heads underneath their bodies as she'd first assumed. Their skulls had been smashed in. By what exactly, she had no idea. If it had been a tool wielded by a man, the blows were amazingly precise. The poor guys weren't that big and the rest of their bodies were undamaged. Not smashed, she thought. That's not right either. Exploded. Childhood horror stories about seagulls being killed by Alka-Seltzer pellets swirled in her head, but it was the stomach that got blown out in that scenario, wasn't it? Not the skull. Not the brains. And from their respective poses, it looked like the squirrels had been crawling straight for the window when the event in question had reduced each of their heads to little mounds of gore. And it didn't look as if it had all happened at once. Some of the poor little guys, well, they looked fresher than the others. There was a perfectly logical explanation. She was sure of it. Gruesome, to be sure, and a very valid reason to get the hell away from the furry little devils and report the whole mess to security. But logical, nonetheless. God knows, they didn't need any more weirdness around Marshall Ferio, that was for sure. Spend your day working around mannequins and you were bound to believe one of them had turned its head in your direction when you weren't looking. This was normal, 
and to be forgiven, but it was also to be contained and dealt with responsibly. This was the lecture Arthel gave Tammy Keene, Emily Newgirl, and the other nurses who had joined them for dinner that evening at one of the malls in Buckhead. The squirrel's slaughter was common knowledge by then, and Arthel figured the last few women who had invited themselves along were after gruesome details, not comfort food. For a moment or two, it seemed as if her lecture had worked. Arthel's fellow nurses responded with bowed heads and the dull clinks of spoons hitting cast-iron skillets as they all devoured their macaroni and cheese. He killed them. It was Emily who'd said it, of course. Emily, with her doe eyes and that squeaky, cartoony voice Arthel just knew was an act designed to get men to take care of her. Little Emily knew girl, her head full of childish ideas that would never provide her with a grown-up life. And even though she looked away quickly from Arthel's fearsome glare, the sight of it wasn't enough to keep her mouth shut. He can make you do things. He can. If you look into his eyes, he can make you. And when it's over, you don't remember doing any of it. No one said anything until the waiter brought the check. All right, well, no conversation about a new Rice book would be complete without including the official Rice around here, Anne Rice, uh, who appeared on our premiere, and joins us now with comments and her thoughts about The Heaven's Rise. So, Anne, welcome to the Heaven's Rise special of The Dinner Party Show. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, Christopher's here. We've got all the rices. We've got a room full of rice. <laughs> well, we're not all in the same room. Mom is joining us via Skype from the desert. By via satellite. Live from the desert via satellite. It's Anne Rice. <laughs> I don't know if a satellite is involved, but if it is. I think it's probably involved even with, like, if you make this cell phone call. There's probably a satellite so. involved somewhere. Satellites are involved now But in we're not here to talk about telecommunications. We're oh, here right. to talk about the heavens rise. So, Anne, you've read it, I assume. I have read it. Oh, that's really good. I read it with great pleasure. Great pleasure, indeed. So, yeah, we wanted to just get, we've been talking about the book, so we wanted to get some of your reactions to, you know, just sort of the book in general. Well, first off, it was a page-turner. I mean, everything Christopher writes is suspenseful and a page-turner, and I always marvel at that and marvel at the way he's able to just unravel this story so that I'm carrying the manuscript around the house with me, you right. know, and reading it at the breakfast table and the lunch table and, and, and canceling stuff in order to read it. That, that he scored, again, beautifully on that level. But I think this novel was particularly exciting to me for two reasons. One, it was his first foray into the out-and-out supernatural, and I just loved what he did with that. The so way imaginative, yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole universe that he creates there, the whole, all of those, I don't want to give away thing, anything from the book because I want people to be surprised. Well, and but- also the interesting thing that we should add here for the people who are listening is that both of you read a very early version of the book. I spent two years working on the novel. I wrote about four drafts before it ever saw an editor or ever went out to a publisher in New York. And both of you read, uh, I, I believe, Eric, you actually read more than one draft, but Mom, you read a, a pretty early draft. And I got notes from you for the first time ever on a book. Usually I wait until it's it's all wrapped up and then I give it to you, Mom, to read. But this time I asked for your input. Did that put you on the spot? You know, Chris, I don't even remember giving those notes. <laughs> if I did, I mean, I, I, I mainly remember what I enjoyed about it. Um, I actually don't remember. You know, I have I have myself a great respect for the integrity of any writer. Right. And Giving notes to me is something that involves great caution. Right, right. Um, and I hope I was respectful with regard oh, to those yeah, notes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, well, you were. What, I, what I remember, actually, was what I liked about the book. Mm-hmm. I, I was amazed, um, well, you know, if, if I was amazed that you created an original story. You didn't go to any standard cosmology absolutely. or supernatural device. Right. You created something all your own, and I thought, that was very ingenious and very, very well done. I was, I was impressed with that. I, I think uh, to have an original cosmology uh, is a very, very powerful thing for a writer. Right. It really is. I mean, much as I like to deal with tra- traditional ghosts, vampires, witches, and so forth, I, I also like to 
turn those things around and reinvent them. Right. And and answer you know. or attempt to answer a new question about them. I mean, for you, obviously, it was what what is the internal psychological life of a vampire? For me, with this story, I, I didn't actually attack the story first. It was about the cosmology, and that was actually what the two years were about. I wasn't spending two years shaping character motivations. I was spending two years trying to create a cosmology that had an internal logic that was consistent. But it all began with this question of if you are actually controlling someone's mind, which we've seen a lot of, it is sort of a trope, I think might be the right term for it. Glamoring. If you're glamoring right. someone. But if you're if you're doing that, what happens to them? What happens to the essential components of who they actually are as a person? And does their very soul have fundamental quantum mechanical qualities to it that are still present in some form while you are controlling and manipulating them? And what that gave rise to was this idea of a conduit between the person who is doing the mind control and the person who is being controlled. And once I started looking at it from that way, this whole new supernatural universe I hadn't considered before opened up. And and in fact, it was actually very big in the early drafts of the book. And I've reined it in a bit, a bit excuse me, not, I haven't eliminated stuff, but I just didn't go down those those pathways and alleyways with it in, in this book. You know, I think those are still sure. open to be explored later. But but you're right; sure. it is about the cosmology. And I remember you saying that to me. I think you were actually quoting, I think you were quoting a famous writer who said that the difference between stuff that was just sort of, I guess, pure potboiler and uh, true supernatural literature, even though I use that latter word with some reservation. Uh, was was a fully realized cosmology. Well, I, I think I might have been quoting H.P. Lovecraft, mm. with whom all of us supernatural writers have a love-hate relationship. Right. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it was Lovecraft who might have uh, been speculating about that, how important it was to have a cosmology. Uh, I wish I could remember specifically what he said, but I know it influenced me profoundly. Mm-hmm. Well, the book is also terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I think that my book, not H.P. Lovecraft. No, no, book, I, yeah. I don't actually know that much about H.P. Lovecraft. But I, but the 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 Heaven's Rise was, you know, was spine tingling. It was it it was a very frightening book. Mm-hmm. Like, and there's, but does does that make it a horror novel? Like, I I think that's there's a whole like the genre question. And and what do you think is a horror novel? Well, I have a very loose definition of a horror novel, really, um, and it can spill over. Uh, into science fiction or speculative fiction of various kinds. Uh, I, I guess what what I mean by horror novel is a novel that does involve the supernatural or the preternatural um, uh, or the entirely fantastic in some in some way. And I do expect such a novel to scare me and be very suspenseful and have a great payoff as to the mystery. You know, almost all horror novels start with a mystery and how they work that out, how they explain the ghost, the vampire, the mummy, the, the force, the, the haunting, you know, is very important um, to me. I mean, so horror fiction to me has to deliver a lot of things to be really good horror fiction. Now, that having been said, there are people who differentiate between horror and terror. And they say too much fiction today is merely terrifying that a sense of horror, suffocating horror, has been lost. But I'm never been sure what that's all about. Um, I yeah, think that's a little hair splitting. I I'm not sure well, that... Right. And I think describing the fear of your protagonist really can be, as Edgar Allan Poe did in The Telltale Heart, the fear inside right. the protagonist, you know, that's what horror fiction is about a lot of the time. And that's this it, book in spades. Well, I, yeah. here's where I would draw the line, right? I think fantasy and sci-fi begin us in an alternate reality in which the majority of the characters that we meet are already intimately familiar with the alternate reality. Whereas horror implies that an alternate reality is going to collide with our normal everyday universe and the rug is going to be pulled out from under several mortal average characters who aren't yet familiar with this power or this new universe or this shadowy ghost world that's just around the corner from where they live. I think there's well, that, 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 that's, that's where the fear aspect comes from, right? Well, if we, I would, 
Well, I, I would say you have to be fluid with that definition because in many of my novels, everybody is a supernatural character. That's the way it was in, say, Blood and Gold, Marius's vampire story, or the vampire Armand, or even finally in Interview with the Vampire, there was nobody mortal left after the first part of the book. I mean, it may start off with ordinary mortal people colliding with the supernatural, but pretty soon the whole supernatural world becomes the world, yet I still think those are horror novels. Well, would you think that you're a horror novelist? Oh, yeah, sure. I hope so. Definitely. But you have to understand that that I don't believe it's a pejorative term. I don't think it's a limiting term. I think a novel can be a horror novel and can be a great novel. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think there's a lot more to it than just that. Genre doesn't limit. Genre doesn't and shouldn't limit great fiction. Well, it's it a, really it, shouldn't. I agree, and it's interesting because I think if you closely examine the marketing materials for The Heavens Rise, you will not find the word horror. We're using it as part of this special show because I think I want to make it clear to the, to the enormous number of horror fans out there that this book has elements in it that will appeal to them because it is scary. It's it horrifying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's absolutely. You know, I oh, mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think fantasy is a perfectly good term for this, too, though I know fantasy is used more often to describe something like Game of Thrones by George Martin, you know. Yes. But this is this is fantasy. This is speculative. It, speculative fiction, in a way, is the most flexible term for all this. It's the most inclusive. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, like mm-hmm. you, Anne, I think the thing that struck me most about this book was this creation of something completely new, totally original that yeah. com- and completely spellbinding. This whole mythology that mm-hmm. that is that underlies the essence of this story, which I don't want to give away again, right. but but that to me was the part of the story that was the most compelling and the most impelling. It kept me moving forward because I wanted to know how it was going to evolve once it right. began. And I, right. also I think it's worth noting that it is based in a more sort of sci-fi molecular kind of down here on earth cosmology than the rice yeah. family is typically associated with there's not a lot of really the spirit world happening in this book it's no. more you know I, the thing that i like um you know there's a british horror novelist that we just lost very recently james herbert who who wrote very much in this way but he would take a spiritual idea and try to give it a, a kind of quantum mechanical or, or quantum sure. physics basis, yeah. much as you did, and particularly in the lives of the Mayfair witches when you got into yeah. the third helix mm-hmm. and all those sort of things surrounding the explanation yeah. of the Taltos. I was very attracted. Those are my favorite books that you've ever written. I love all your yeah, books, I, but those are, I those really are the ones that I responded that. to. Yeah, I love to write that sort of thing, but I'm, I am scientifically challenged, so it's always very hard <laughs> for me to do it. But I admire the writers who aren't and can get into all that scientific stuff. Sort of like Preston and Child in The Relic. Right. They get into a lot of that because, uh, you know, obviously they have an easier time with all those delicious scientific terms. But I love the tension between the horrifying and the haunting and, and the molecular reality that might be involved there. You know, yeah. it's, it's very tantalizing. But another thing I, w- I want to say is that I think what you did here is very dependent <clears throat> upon a very well-realized, down-to-earth, realistic, physical setting for the novel. Mm-hmm. It worked because of that. And that was something I very much admired about The Heavens Rise. You went back to New Orleans, and you went back to New Orleans with all its color, its richness, its its eccentricity, and its particular Gothic appeal. You know, New Orleans is really uh, a unique city in, in this country. And very I think much. it's unique. I think it's unique to readers of fantasy and horror fiction because New Orleans, better than any other city, becomes a character in the prose. Oh, absolutely. A character in the story. And you handled it beautifully. And you talked about a New Orleans that I really don't know. Mm. Yes, you know, I left there with modern when I was so conflicts young. And, and modern elements yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, incorporate yeah. as well as the old and the, the colorful, sure, but also and, those more modern components of what New Orleans well, is sure. dealing with today. And Christopher spent his his adolescence in New Orleans and he has many ties there and many friends. In a way, I, I was never really like that, though I didn't leave till I was 15 or 16, I guess, I guess maybe even 17. But still, I was a kind of isolated kid. And that was many decades ago. But you really know contemporary New Orleans and you know a whole generation there that you went to school with. So you really made the city come to life and, and yet you kept all the, you, well, you not only kept, I mean, you just reflected all the terrific 
terrific atmosphere. And the scenes you describe, I mean, they're just they're just so physically vivid. And all of that, of course, adds to the horror, the suspense, and the shocking quality of the original things you're doing. Because when you draw a reader that far along with concrete details mm-hmm. and and that big chunk of, of realistic uh, context, the reader's going to believe the fantastic things you write if Absolutely. they're done Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great point. And Founding was, it in sort of a basis of reality is, is a, I hadn't thought of it until just you saying that, but yeah, that's a part of what made it so terrifying for me was that it was based in so, right. so concretely in the real. And I was yeah. reminded, Eric, of something that you say all the time, your favorite horror movie or the horror movie that scared you the most was The Omen because in that film, the oh, devil yeah. manipulated actual physical elements of people's everyday environment. Cars became terrifying. Elevator shafts became terrifying. Real life stuff became the implements of evil and I became terrified to get on the elevator. I was terrified to go get in my car after the movie. But this is a concept in which you (laughs) can become the implement of evil because the person with the ability to control you can literally force you to do anything and you're absolutely powerless and you're not conscious when it's happening. You come to having realized what you've done. Which I just think is the most terrifying prospect. I do too. I can't imagine. I, yeah, it's- but mom, I want to. I, I know we want to ask you this too because this is something that I wrestled with throughout the book. Is what is truly scary, and what's just gross? You know, what is truly frightening, <laughs> and what's just gratuitous and gory? It's a, it's a hard line to walk. It's one that I said to, to the editor of the book, Mitchell Ivers. I said, I need. I'm going to count on you to tell me where I've crossed over the line into just gore fest. You know, and well, well the great Stephen King. <laughs> brags about the fact that if he can't go for the scary, he goes for the gross out. Yeah. He's actually explained that in detail. So, um, you know, I don't know that there's it's like Shane Black blowing gross. things up. Yeah, I guess they're, they're... Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's anything really terrible about being gross. If you, if you write it well and you do it well, um, well, he, I don't know. Let me rephrase the let, let me refine the struggle that I I went through on this book. One of the reasons I think it took me a while to write anything that could be called horror is because horror movies in the past few years became so sadistic. You know, tor- oh, yeah. torture yeah. porn became this huge genre. That. And I didn't see any of these movies, but just having scenes described to me upset mm-hmm. me for days. I couldn't get them out of my head. And so mm-hmm. I, I really, that was the line I was I was nervous about, was I don't want to cross over into the into just pure sadism, you know? Oh, sure. Well, I try to avoid that, too, believe it or not. I mean, I really don't. <laughs> I, I, believe, I believe sadism deserves to be treated symbolically in pornography, not in Consensual in sadism. You know. Yeah, well, whatever. Yeah, yeah right. or in fantasies, blatant fantasies of being coerced or whatever. But uh, I think we all want to, all of us, uh, no matter how deep we are in our fiction, we want to avoid the immoral scene. Mm -hmm. We don't want to glorify rape. We don't want to glorify cruelty. And uh, I I think that inhibits every writer of horror and supernatural fiction and fantasy. At least it should. But, but, you know, and I also think we all have our own line. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. The dance that each writer does with their own line in that regard is sort of what shapes their work. Because I do read a lot of novelists that could probably be described as being very sadistic. But I but I Mm -hmm. enjoy their work because for me, subjectively, I don't feel like I've been pulled over into the glorification. Right. I mean, I think that's a really good point that if you're like like Lestat making that Lestat kills people and eats them you know because that's how yeah. he lives but he makes the decision that he's going to you know kill bad people he's going to kill the people evil who are doer, the yeah. evil doer right. and so it changes the tone of it you know that that sort of thing honestly i the really the only part of your book that i thought was moved into the gore area you took out so yeah <laughs> you know because because it was but an assault, may, it may make it into a future book because so. it was an assault on the innocent you know yeah. that was the thing that i that's the part that that i find that's always the element that i find the most like irredeemable like Really, they they were defenseless. Like yeah. like people are never really defenseless. People are you know nobody's ever all good or all bad. So I, I know we have a spoiler free zone, but I'm not sure I know exactly what scene you're talking about, and I'm not sure it was taken out. I think it happened on the island. 
On the island, on the island, on and the it island. involved dumb, dumb animals, and that's as much as I'm going to say animals. about it. That is still in, my friend. Oh yeah, yeah, that is still in. Oh, wow. I remember that scene. Yeah, I remember that's that. still okay. in. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's still in, and it happens a lot sooner. Alert. It happens a lot sooner. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about. I thought that scene was beautifully written. That's what excited me about it. It was gorgeously written. Yeah. I loved it. Okay. It was poetic. Oh, I thought you told me you'd taken it out. So, yeah, that's No, I'll tell you what. The people who have expressed movie interest in The Heavens Rise, and there are a lot more than have expressed movie interest in my past books, are gunning for for that scene because you know how people are with animals. Yeah. I I actually went to a, a mystery conference where a writer said, if you do anything bad to an animal, I'll stop reading your book. And somebody in the back raised his hand and said, so let me get this straight. You can murder your characters. You can have your characters get raped. But if you do something to a cat, you're done. And I mean, literally the whole conference was taken over by this debate about how much animal cruelty was allowed in it a book. It really is. Like I, Earthquake, your favorite movie, Earthquake. People, yeah. Mothers are being separated from their children. The city's yeah. going down. But when that, it's a cat or is it a dog, a is dog trapped in the, cat, yeah. I think it's a puppy that's trapped in the apartment. The audience is like... Oh, no. no. Right, yeah. It's a really strange <laughs> We thing. love our pets. It's we do. Really well, it's thing. not pets, and it's not that sort of thing. So I'm not going to say anything okay. else because I, I got... But I think it is very exciting that there's been so much movie discussion yes, about this book. I think has. it's very... It, because the the book is so evocative of all the imagery and all of the... The story is so great. I, I can certainly see why there'd well, be a lot of movie and interest it's in an, it. It is a movie that... Or let's just say it's a book that begins in the YA world, which is very popular right now because it begins when our main characters are seniors in high school and then it advances forward years ahead but the events that have shaped their lives happened when they were 17 and 18 years old and were largely informed by the concerns that teenagers have at those periods in their lives but something truly traumatic and terrible happens in the midst of that that sets them on the courses that they're on so people are gravitating towards that part of the universe of it as well all right now the two of you i want to talk the really the really important part of this conversation the things that most every that everybody wants to hear about yes the two of you are going on book tour together. We're going on book tour together. <laughs> Talk about that. You've never done that before. We've never done it What before. do you think, Anne, going on book tour with Christopher? Well, I, I think it's great. I mean, I, I, I'm going to... I'm going to love it. I, I'm already signed up to love it. I know it's going to be great. Well, I'm really difficult, though. I don't know why we... Though. <laughs> I'm like a nightmare. <laughs> if I don't have Diet Coke at a certain temperature, I'm just going to throw a fit and storm oh, yeah, out of our book Oh, yeah, because you're so much trouble. Well, uh, you couldn't be touring with a better partner because one thing I always have on tour is Diet Coke. Oh, at the we're right set time. then. We're set. So, you're going to the right. rolling cart of Diet second, Coke. Second, we'll see to that. He yes. will see that we have Diet Coke at the right temperature. I even take my own fold-up ice chest with me I on love tour. that about you. Anne literally has this up. rolling ice chest that people pull around oh, no, behind no, her with... <laughs> This is the stuffed folding ice chest. She has folds. a new one. She, oh, I saw it. In, up? I saw it in New York when we were at Thriller Fest. It's yeah. like soft on the outside, and you can carry it around like a shoulder bag if you have a yeah. very powerful shoulder. And Becca well, does. Becca, Becca, Becca does. carries it, and we check it on the plane without ice, of course. <laughs> and then we'll the I'm not getting the on the plane with you with a bag full of Diet Coke. <laughs> well, I don't think I, they let I, you. I used to actually put Diet Coke in my luggage, but one time it exploded. And <laughs> my beloved Paul said, Anne, no more Diet Coke in the luggage. <laughs> dripping, dripping suitcase in New York. But anyway, uh, you take out this, this puffy folded ice chest that's zipped shut, and then you fill it up with ice at the first stop uh, before you even get to your hotel, and you've got ice. We should put logos of the book on it and sell them online as the official tour ice chest, the folding yeah, ice chest. Yeah, we could auction the, them off for charity. The rice tour. Charity hell. <laughs> charity hell. It'll cover the food budget here at the dinner party show. Well, I'm jealous of the two of you off on tour together. I think it sounds like a ball. I think we're going to have a blast. I want to say that I'm very much looking forward to this tour because a lot of my people of the page on Facebook say they read Chris's novels. And a lot are very interested in reading Chris's novels. And Chris also brings new readers to the signing. Um, and I hope I'll bring new readers to him. So I think it's going to be extremely exciting. To I think tour. it's the I perfect really marriage. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great combination of the two of you because, yeah, the, the divergent readers coming together and being exposed to the but, you know, the other if they haven't been, which I find hard to imagine in both of your cases, but I assume that's possible. 
Well, you never know. For a while there, I was writing books that were considered to be more uh, down-here-on-earth thrillers, more mainstream thrillers, particularly the last one, The Moonlit Earth, and the one before that, Blind Fall. They were, they were not gothic, I think, by anybody's imagination. They were much more noir and hard-boiled, and so there wasn't necessarily the same crossover that there may be with this book. Um, that's true. For the very that, simple reason that this book true. is set in New Orleans again. The previous two well, books were both set yeah. in California. Yeah, Supernatural and New Orleans, that gives us two big areas very much in common. And I think it's going to be great fun. What are you planning to do from now on? Do you think this will be the first of many Supernatural novels for you? I am about a third of the way through another Supernatural novel set in South Louisiana. Ooh. And that is all I'm able to say about Can't it. Can't That sounds very exciting. I, yeah. I, I really think that this is a great turn. But, but you know, I, I really can't. I've written very few novels that didn't have a supernatural element. In right. Them. And, and I always go back to that. I mean, well, a lot of people maybe wouldn't think that about the Christ the Lord novels I wrote, but they're really supernatural novels. There's about, yeah. uh, they're about a person who's God and man walking mm-hmm. around on the earth as a child and a young man and a person who's capable of performing miracles. And so I, I've written very little, I guess what, maybe two novels that didn't have a supernatural element, maybe three. What's the most appealing part of writing Supernatural for you? Why why do you choose that as a fiction sort of basis? You know, it's not a choice. It's like being gay. It's where the intensity is. It just happens. It's where the intensity I don't think writers can choose these things. There might be some element of when you're ready to focus on it, but either you've got the desire to do that and, and, and the supernatural is reality to you, or it isn't. And it's like a card you draw. It's, it's just the way I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, we're we're very happy that it that you were born that way because it it certainly worked for a lot of us out here, and we're really looking forward to to this, and really appreciate you coming on to help us promote uh, this exciting new book. It's been a pleasure trying to interrupt you guys periodically to speak with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the case here at the dinner party show. Just teasing. Yeah, it's been a lot of a lot of fun. I can't wait for the heavens rise to break. I, I just. Uh, can't wait. I can't wait either. I can't wait to go on tour. I think we're going to have so much fun. I oh, hope you started packing now because so we're going to be on the road for a while. Yeah, well, we're definitely reserving Diet Coke in every city. Absolutely. You know, so. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you for having me. All right, darling. Come back soon. Take care. Bye. Bye, Mom. All right. Well, it's always a pleasure to have Anne Rice join us with her opinion on just about anything. Anything. But the novel doesn't go on sale until October 15th, but we've just given you an exclusive look inside The Heaven's Rise, the first supernatural thriller from my co-host, New York Times bestselling novelist, Christopher Rice. Remember, party people, The Dinner Party Show will be running a special schedule for these next two months. We'll be on hiatus from live shows during the month of September, but don't worry, we haven't forgotten about our lovely party people. Every Sunday evening at our regular showtime, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Christopher and I will be having cocktail chatter over on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. You'll be able to talk with us live and direct as we give Shea Butters some much-needed time off. This is also the time when we'll reveal some of our special, never-before-seen YouTube videos, as well as the forthcoming book trailer for The Heaven's Rise, which is currently in production. If you pre-order a copy of The Heaven's Rise and email your receipt to theheavensrise at gmail.com, you'll receive a signed copy of an original manuscript page featuring author notes. Again, this giveaway is open until publication day, October 15th. But why wait? In October, we'll be doing special episodes of The Dinner Party Show featuring Christopher's reports from the road as he heads out on a cross-country tour with his mother, Anne Rice. Then, on November 17th, We'll return to our usual format with a two-hour live show where we will celebrate our one-year anniversary. In the meantime, catch up on our previous episodes, all of which are available through our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and on behalf of myself and my co-host, Christopher Rice, thank you for listening. We hope that you'll continue to enjoy The Dinner Party Show as always and The Heavens Rise, which hits shelves this October. Thanks, and happy reading. Give me what you alone can give I'll kiss the pill I dream of